0: Sorry, my chapter 15. What am I talking about? Um, We're going to be looking at a whole chapter this morning, whole chapter this morning. And so what I'm going to do is because of time, I'm not going to read the whole chapter um, because we're going to go back and walk through the content. And so what I'm going to do is read um, the first first five verses um, and the last few verses. And so we kind of get a big kind of bookend. Um, perspective of what we're going to be studying, okay? And so Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 and then verses 42 to 47, you know? Yeah? Is that all good? Everyone's there. If you need a Bible, look, we've got some to your right over there. You can grab it. Um, And the reason why we say you should have a Bible is because I refer to um, the text a lot because I want us to see Um, And I just don't want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to actually see it for yourself. And so that's the plan, Mark chapter 15. um, And I'm going to read. Yeah? Cool. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. Um, And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, verse 2. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. And what happens after is that they, you know, um, Pilate, um, they deliver him over to Pilate. And um, um, Jesus is mocked and crucified. And let's pick up at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma, sabbath, thani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion um, who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much. For this morning, for this opportunity once again to reflect on who you are through the life and the death of Jesus. God, what we're about to look at is very familiar grounds for most of us. Like I've been praying all week, may you not only give us a right understanding, but may you provide for us transformation through what we learned this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Um, Like I prayed, we are about to explore something that is familiar for both of us, okay, familiar for all of us, and that is the, the, the suffering and the death of Jesus and As I've been studying this this week, um, I realized I had a certain mindset as I was doing so. And that mindset was, hey, I know this a lot. I I know about Jesus' death. I know how it happened. Kind of know the significance of it. Um, And kind of that was the mindset in which I approached this with. But the more I studied, the more I was reminded to pray, that God would supernaturally take what is familiar and would actually make a visible impact in my life from it. And so that is what I want you guys to be doing, right? As we are exploring and looking at Jesus' suffering and death, I want us to be praying that God would actually use what we're familiar with to really change us. And so before we move any further, I want us to just spend about a minute in our chairs alone praying that god would take this and really make an impact and so um, in your own time in your own way begin to pray now and in about a minute i'm going to bring us back and we're going to dive into our text God, we're praying, we'll continue to pray that you would use your word to give us a supernatural understanding that transforms the way we relate to you, to each other, and it absolutely, in the coming weeks, changes the way we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, last time in Mark, if you was here two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, um, the Jewish authorities, and we got to understand how the trial was illegal in so many ways, just so illegal, so bad. Um, we also got to discover how, at the same time, while Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, Peter was denying him, um, and we discovered all of that. And then when Jesus' trial was over, um, the Jewish Religious leaders um, escorted him to the soldiers, and he um, got scourged. Um, This week, the scene opens with the religious leaders in a meeting. And they're in a meeting trying to figure out what to do with Jesus, okay? They were authorized to judge cases, but they didn't have the authority to pass a legitimate death sentence. Only the Roman government had the authority to do so. And so the obvious next step for the religious leaders was to convince the Roman authorities that Jesus was a criminal worthy of a state-sanctioned death sentence. In the time of Jesus, Pilate... Pontius Pilate, was the Roman governor of Judea. And during the Passover festival, he was one of several available governors who had the legal right to sentence Jesus to death. And so right now, we're still in the time of the Passover festival, okay? And there are several governors around, and Pilate is one of the Roman governors who had the authority Um, to sentence Jesus to death. And so the religious leaders, what they do is they restrain Jesus and transported him to Pilate with the hopes that he would give them what they wanted, and that is the death sentence for Jesus. When Jesus arrived before Pilate, he was immediately questioned um, not about what he had done wrong, but about his identity, Look at verse 2. It says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? To this question, Jesus' answer is straightforward and direct, okay? He simply replies back to Pilate, You have said so. And as soon as the religious leaders heard Jesus affirm his kinship, they freak out and begin to bring about many other accusations against him. And as they brought one accusation after another, Jesus' response is incredible. What does he do? He remains silent. Doesn't say a word. He simply kept silent. Surprised and intrigued by Jesus' silence, Pilate says to Peter, look at verse 4, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Pilate is amazed. He's like, they're bringing all these charges against you, and you are not trying to defend yourself at all, Jesus. What is wrong with you? Verse 5, But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. We know from the other gospel writers that Pilate does not want to be involved in this case at all, okay? And so from the very beginning, he's been doing all he can to avoid making the final verdict for this case. But so far, his efforts have failed. Just when he was about to lose all hope, he stumbles upon another way, he can actually get out of making a final verdict. Now, again, just a reminder, everything that is going on here is happening during the Passover festival. And so during the festival, it was customary for a prisoner to be released from prison. And it was up to the people to make the decision. In other words, the people got to choose... A prisoner, they wanted to be released. Just thinking about this, and I was like, imagine if this happened in our day and age. Like, the general public got to decide on prisoners they wanted to be released. That would be very interesting. Very interesting. (coughs) And so, Pilate, seeing this as an opportunity to escape the responsibility of a decision, he was convinced... Jesus could escape death according to this custom. And so Pilate agrees to put into effect this custom. And he doesn't only agree to it, he makes a suggestion. He suggests to the people which prisoner he thought deserved to be released. Look at verse 9 carefully. It says, And Pilate answered them saying, Do do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, right? Right? And if that's the tone of the question, he's like, you really, you know, you want me to release him, right? That's kind of what you're saying. Verse 10 then tells us the reasoning behind his suggestion. Look at verse 10. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate is well aware of the fact that the religious leaders are accusing Jesus out of envy, knowing this, he does all he can to influence the crowd to vote for the release of Jesus. But his campaign is unsuccessful. Why? Look at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. the religious leaders manage to manipulate the crowds to a decision that just doesn't make sense at all. They vote for the release of a convicted criminal instead of an innocent man. Pilate was convinced the crowd would choose to release Jesus, but instead they choose a man named Barabbas. Barabbas now was one of Israel's you could say most notorious prisoners. He was a bit of a savage, all right? He was a political enemy of Rome. He was this kind of right-wing extremist who had led a violent uprising against the Roman government, a government in order to deliver Israel from the pollution of Roman rule. And so during this violent uprising, Barabbas was leading. He ended up committing murder, and of course, he was arrested and imprisoned for it. And so, shocked and confused by the decision of the people to release Barabbas, Pilate says to them in verse 12, look at verse 12, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Okay, she is like, okay, you've decided to release Barabbas, then what do you want me to do with this Jesus? In saying this, Pilate was probably hoping the crowd would kind of say, you know what, this Jesus, he hasn't done, he hasn't really done anything wrong. And so what he deserves is some punishment, just some minor punishment, and then he can be released. But Pilate is then surprised and horrified when the crowd began to demand the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Pilate, right now, amazed by their determination to get rid of Jesus, is super concerned right now. And so he says to the crowd in verse 14, why? (laughs) What evil has he done? They ignore this rhetorical question. And instead, continue to raise the volume of their screams for the crucifixion of Jesus. And so, riddled with both paranoia and confusion, Pilate gives them what they want. He sets Barabbas free and gives the order for Jesus to be crucified. Barabbas, a murderer and a rebel to the core, is set free while the righteous and innocent Son of God is delivered over to crucifixion. This is injustice. This is scandalous. But as grim and as, uh, and as outrageous this all seems, we'll soon find out how this is all part of the purpose and plan of the God of the universe, to accomplish his promised redemption. But before we explore this, let's pause to notice something remarkable in this scene. The story of Barabbas is one of the most striking illustrations of the gospel. It's a vivid picture of how God, the God of the universe, Forgives and justifies sinners. Barabbas deserved to die, but Jesus dies in his place so he may escape death. This is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. The gospel is the good news that our sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness is laid on us. And because of this, we inherit forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Because of Jesus' death, we're freed from the power and penalty of sin, and we're gifted with the priceless and satisfying relationship with God. Amen? Gosh incredible verse 16 and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters and they called together the whole battalion right about now Jesus is physically emotionally mentally exhausted and in pain from everything that he's gone through before he arrived at the governor's headquarters he had been scourged okay what is scourge what is flogging right scourging was nicknamed the halfway death That's what the nickname is, right? Jesus was stripped naked, tied down, and his skin was ripped off the bone by a deadly whip. And in this condition, he's now surrounded by a mob of soldiers ready to inflict further punishment on him. First, they dress him up in a purple robe, then they twist together a crown of thorns and force it on his head. And so Jesus, dressed in a purple robe and wearing a crown made of thorns, he is is ridiculed and scorned by the soldiers, okay? They mock him by hailing him as the king of the Jews. Some of them even get on their knees and begin to bow and pay homage to him, all with this mockery and ridicule. They, 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 they've heard him say the conviction or what the charge against Jesus is that he's a king of the Jews. They're very much like he's a fake king. and So right now, they're just mocking him. Then one after They strike him all over his body with a reed, the size and weight of a golf ball. And as the blood of Jesus splatters all over the room, they show no mercy. No mercy. They begin to spit on him. They begin to get more and more crude with their mockery. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Normally, a, a convicted um, a convict carried their own cross to where they were going to be crucified, but Jesus, at this point, is just too weak, too slow, to carry his own cross. So verse 21 lets us know that the soldiers compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they and they asked Simon and they said, Simon, please carry his cross for him. When they got to Golgotha, that is the name of the place Jesus was crucified. Um, seeing he was in critical condition, they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh to help um, alleviate the pain of execution. But Jesus refused to drink. And then verse 24 says, look at verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. In those days, death by crucifixion was a horrible means of execution. First, it was slow and horrific. It, it, it punished the criminal by prolonging the pain for as long as possible. Second, it was humiliating. The victim was paraded through the streets with a placard announcing the crime, and they were then hanged on a cross, strategically placed beside a busy road. And this public exposure served as a warning sign. One historian named Cicero had this to say about crucifixion. He says this, to flog a Roman citizen is a crime. To kill him is an act of murder. But to crucify him, there is no fitting word that can describe so horrible a deed. Okay, And there's, there's articles out there that give and describe the severity of the crucifixion Jesus went through. We just don't have time to look at it now. There were many ways to die back there. Many ways to die, but crucifixion was the most feared and humiliating way to die among the citizens of the ancient world. Jesus was crucified around nine o'clock in the morning that day with him. They crucified two others. They were two criminals, one to his right and one to his left. So Jesus was in the middle, um, and every criminal being crucified had this placard just identifying their crime, and it was nailed to the top of the cross. And for Jesus, the inscription of the charge on his placard read, the king of the Jews. In other words, Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the king of the Jews. What irony. And knowing this, everyone who witnessed his group of fiction mocked him and taunted him. And verse 29 to 32 describes how passers-by would just, um, um, just, just just ridicule him and scorn him and all of these things. And even the chief priests, right? They just continued to mock Jesus. Everyone had turned on Jesus. His disciples had left him for dead in the garden. One of his disciples had betrayed him. With a kiss, his most trusted and committed disciple had denied knowing him, and now he's rejected by everyone else. Jesus hanging, bruised, and battered on the cross is a portrait of total rejection. It's a sad and horrific sight, but in response to this, I love what Mark Strauss, who's a theologian, says. He says this. Listen to this. Yet those who have eyes of faith recognize that while humanity has turned against God, God has not rejected them. The death of Jesus is an act of reconciliation, God's sacrificial gift to the world for our sins. As soon as it turned noon, the sky became extremely dark. And so Jesus was crucified, 9 a.m. noon, three hours later. And at three in the afternoon, three hours later, with a face overcome by terror and agony, and with blood dripping from his wounds, Jesus cried out. Look at verse 34. Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani." which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a lot in this chapter. We could spend days and months exploring the many truths that are in here. But one of the verses that stand out tends to leap out from this chapter. Every time I read it, and I'm sure every time you've read it, it's this verse. In verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there is no doubt Jesus suffered physical agony on the cross. No doubt. But what is being spoken about here and what grieves Jesus the most is the spiritual agony he was experiencing the agony of being forsaken and abandoned by God, his heavenly Father. On the cross, Jesus was in a way that is kind of mysterious to us. Jesus was rejected by God so that we may be accepted by God. And he was rejected, not because of his sins. Jesus is perfect, but because of our sins. He was not being punished for his sin. Jesus was perfect. Like I said, he was punished for my sins and your sins, for every wicked and shameful thing we've thought, said, or done. Jesus received what we deserve And at the same time, he achieved for us what we don't deserve. And that is a true and lasting relationship with God. Listen to what Paul Tripp says. He says, Jesus faced separation from his father in the here and now so that we would know the father's acceptance now and for all eternity. After Jesus expressed grief for being forsaken by God, look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the events following his death were beyond belief, okay? First, this is what happens. The curtain in the temple was torn in two all the way from the top to the bottom. Second, the centurion, who was a high-ranking, Roman military officer responded to Jesus' death in the most unexpected way. Okay? Guys, read this. Read this. Verse 39. Let's all read it. Now, when the centurion who stood in front of him saw how he died, he said, Truly, this man was God's son. Truly, This man, it's not just what he said, it was who he was. He was a high-ranking Roman military officer, and what that means is that not too long ago, he was probably part of the cohort of soldiers that inflicted intense punishment and mockery on Jesus. Now, He sees Jesus in a completely different way, all right? It's crazy. He sees Jesus not as this convicted um, criminal deserving of death. He doesn't see Jesus as this would-be fake king anymore. He sees Jesus for who he truly is, and that is the Messiah, the son of the living God, he would have seen many people die this man he would have but he had never seen a man die like this a lot of interesting thing in mark 15 but it's interesting that mark the author does not describe the details and the horror of Jesus' physical suffering. He doesn't, okay? If we go back to, um, I think, verse 30, verse 29, or something like that, he just talks about, hey, and they tried to give Jesus um, um, wine mixed with myrrh, and Jesus rejected it, and he just goes on to say, and then they crucified him. And then he goes on to talk about how they divided his clothes. And that's all he talks about when it comes to the crucifixion. No detail, no graphic detail about um, kind of the physical, nothing like that. And as an author inspired by the Holy Spirit, he does this intentionally. Mark avoids the graphic nature of Jesus' crucifixion And the reason he does this is that he wants us to focus on the theological significance of his death. Jesus' suffering have always been a window through which we see and experience God's amazing grace. Like the centurion where to look past the severe physical sufferings of an innocent man and instead recognize that Jesus indeed is indeed the son of god and that his death is God's amazing plan to rescue us from our sin. There has never been better news than this. Think of the most glorious and amazing news you've heard. That does not compare with the amazing news of the gospel, the gospel message Tells us, tells me, it tells you, it tells all humanity on the face of this planet that the terrible truth about ourselves is that we have a heart problem that we cannot fix. About the fact that we are polluted with what God hates. And rejects, and that is sin. Our hearts, our thoughts, our motives, our words, our actions are all stained with sin. But as soon as we're faced with the reality of our sinful state, the gospel message tells us about the wonderful news, the good news about the death of Jesus for sinners to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath on the cross and took our place. Just as he had taken Barabbas' is placed to face the judgment of sin that we deserved. Jesus was forsaken for people like Barabbas, for people like the religious leaders, for people like Pilate, and for people like you and I. And so the big question this morning is, what does Jesus' death mean for you? Have you become desensitized to the meaning of Jesus' death to the point where when you're exposed to it, it's just more information? Or are you, have you been distracted from the significance of Jesus's death. What I mean by that is that the gory physical suffering, which is part of it, has it distracted you from what was really happening? What's the story of his death on the cross mean for you personally? What will you do with the reality of your sinful nature? What would you do with the reality that at the core of who you are, you are bent and focused on living life for your own purposes rather than living life for God's purposes? What will you do with your sin? Will you take it with you to the grave? and insist that you can pay for it yourself? Or will you take it to the cross and be forgiven? This is one of many explorations of the death of Jesus. So this morning, may you by God's grace Hear you by God's grace and the power of his spirit experience true, genuine love and increase of your love and appreciation for God because of what he's done for you in and through Jesus. Let's pray. God, may you help all of us leave this passage, leave this place this morning with a deeper sense of your love for us. God, when we are reminded of how corrupt and sinful we are, let us remember who Jesus is and who and what he's done for us. And so as we sing, are reminded of the gospel, the good news of your passionate response to our sin, through the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus. May you do what only what you can do. May these truths transition from our heads to our hearts, and to the and affect the way we live, in Jesus' name we pray.